Good morning, everybody. We welcome you to our Instagram Live Sunday morning service. I know you're excited. <laughs> On our side of the world, we have flood, famine, fires, plagues. Other than that, it's a pretty nice day. But uh, we continue to head headlong towards the return of the Lord. We pray that all of you are doing well out there. And uh, we're looking forward to getting into the Word today. I'm going to say a little prayer for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We ask your blessing upon those that are tuning in, those that will be tuning in later, and those that will watch over the days uh, the recording of these sessions. We ask your blessing and presence to fill their home, the blood of Jesus to cleanse us in the honor of thy peace, and the opening of thy Word so we might understand and behold wondrous things out of your Word. Above all, let the Lord be glorified. We bless your people and those, O oh Lord, that are yet to listen. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. 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 We're going to begin today reading from the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to the book of Acts, chapter 17. I was uh, studying this morning, and uh, the Lord brought this to my heart, so I pray it blesses you. I'm going to begin reading at Acts 17, verse 15, and then we'll talk a little bit. <clears throat> And they conducted Paul, and they brought him to Athens, receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, for, for to come to him with all speed they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city totally given to idolatry. And so he disputed in the synagogues with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Now certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics, they encountered him. And some said, what is this babbler saying? Others said, uh, he seems to be putting forth some sort of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and they brought him unto Aragapis, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is, that which you're speaking of. And that's what I'd like to talk to you for a few moments this morning on. They brought Paul to Athens. They brought the great apostle Paul to Athens. A little background on this, you know, <clears throat> Paul was sent to Athens to protect him. He had been receiving violent opposition this is a new and burgeoning church. Jesus had been crucified, had risen from the dead, and had ascended into heaven. And now through great persecutions, chiefly which Paul was early on in the church history, he was one of the chief persecutors of the church until the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. His life would be permanently changed from that point on, and he would be driven to take the gospel of this Christ he met on the road who knocked him off his horse. You can read that in the book of Acts. I think it's chapter 8, uh, where Paul was on his way to go arrest Christians. He thought that what they were preaching was a direct threat to the religious establishment. And in fact, it was. Uh, it was it was the gospel of the Lord he was preaching, the Messiah, the, the Savior of all men. And so on his way to Damascus, Syria, in Acts chapter 8, we're told that <clears throat> he has this incredible encounter as he described it, a light that pierced the material world. It broke into 
his part of the world at that time and it shined greater than the sun, knocking him off his horse and blinding him. And speaking to him, he said a voice that told him, why do you persecute me? And it was there that the Lord introduced himself to Paul. And when he got up, uh, he was changed forever. Three days later, his sight would return to him and he would begin to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, which totally blew everybody away because he was the worst of the worst persecuting the church. And so this kind of set the tone for the rest of his life. And he began from that point on taking the gospel to the Jewish people in their synagogues. Sometimes he would be met with a, a welcoming acceptance of this Messiah he was preaching. And, and, but most of the time he was simply being beat up and persecuted and chased from city to city. And that's how we get to Athens in this story this morning. He had been in Thessalonica up in, 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 in the provinces of Greece. He went down to Berea and he was being chased from city to city by the Jews. He was a direct threat to their establishment because of this new gospel he was preaching. Even though he was offering to them the very Messiah that they claimed to be believing in, it was the way that he presented the gospel to them that they could not abide or could not accept. One, they were looking for a Messiah that, that was a conquering king but the way Paul preached it and the way that Jesus was, was, was given to us is that he was literally God manifested in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary. He's the only begotten of the Father, and that is something they couldn't deal with. And so, preaching this gospel, they chased him from city to city. And for his very protection, uh, his, his, his assistance and those that believed put him on a boat, and they sent him to Athens. And that's where we find our story this morning. And, and we're going to see something here in the next couple of minutes, something really profound and something really incredible, where he ended up. Because if you think about it, he started in a dusty old city in Jerusalem, and now he comes to Athens, being chased by his very own brothers. And, and so they put him on a boat, and he crossed the Aegean Sea, and he comes to Athens. And, and, and it's, it's, it's important to understand, Athens was almost like the Washington, D.C., or the London, or the Berlin of its day. Paris. Kind of all of them put together. It was the capital city of ancient Greece. And even today, it's the oldest inhabited city in Europe. Uh, it was the birthplace of Western democracy. Uh, its ideas and concepts, everything that we know in the West flowed out of this capital city. And this is where Paul comes to, right? And <clears throat> it was also the center of science and art and philosophy. And so he comes here, and what's really interesting to me is, rather than maybe taking it as an occasion to see the sights and take a vacation, in verse 16 it says that while he was waiting for his brothers to come meet him in Athens, it says that his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the entire city had been given to idolatry. Which is really interesting. Uh, even today, some of the great temples of the world uh, stand on, on, on the Aragapas, is what the Areopagus, I think that's how you say it, in, in Athens. The great temple of Athena and, and the Parthenon was there. The Parthenon was this huge, massive temple that contained uh, what they believed were statues of the gods, 
each one representing a particular philosophy or a particular uh, energy, if you will. The entire city, wherever you went, there were shrines and altars, kind of like modern day India today, really. I mean, everywhere he went, but it was a beautiful city, an ancient city. It became the, the uh, a chief political philosophy that drove the Roman Empire. And many of the great and, and uh, powerful scientists, philosophers, artists, it was kind of a Greenwich village of its time as well. They came from everywhere. Anyone seeking to know anything went there. And that's where God sends his apostle. And what I find interesting is rather than just kicking back and enjoying the Aegean Sea and the, 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 the warm uh, afternoon uh, uh, sunsets of, of Greece and, and, and the beauty of the city, there was something in him that he couldn't just sit there and look at this, this seat of Gentile uh, magnificence in philosophy and art and culture and not want them to come to a complete and full understanding of the one and the true God. And it says that while he was there, he was stirred in his heart. Um, it really moved him because what was really stirring him wasn't so much all the statues and stuff. What really stirred him, I think, was the fact that these people were the elite of the elite. They were the aristocracy. They were the center of all. They were like, <laughs> they were like Silicon Valley and Washington D.C. and uh, where's the great art places, Versailles and Venice, and you know, all rolled into one. All of them seeking something. All of them being driven by a quest. Everyone having a a philosophy or an idea, where to find truth. Their never-ending quest to find meaning and purpose for life. And he couldn't sit still. He couldn't sit still in that climate and not try and bring them to the understanding of what it was that they were all searching for. They found no answers. They found no enlightenment. And that's what stirred him. It's the compassion of Christ on the inside of him that made him want to throw his hat into the, uh, into the public square. But before he did that, we're told in verse 17... That the first thing he does is he goes to dispute with the Jews and the believers in the synagogue. He went to look for them and talk to them. And so what he did, in a sense, was he went to them and, 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 and for all intents and purposes, really, he was confronting them. Asking them, why is your witness so ineffective? What are you doing to help these people in Athens? What are you doing to help these people come to an understanding of the one and the true Lord, the one and the true God of, of the Word of God? They became much like the churches today. They were content to gather, to meet, to have their church services, although that's not even possible to do right now in many parts of our country and around the world because of this global pandemic. But in his case, he went to them and said, you're shut in your four walls here and you're surrounded by this incredible opportunity to share what it is that you claim to believe with people who don't have the truth. They have a zeal, they have a desire, and you have the answers. And so it says he went and disputed with them, saying you have become absolutely ineffective 
and your ineffectivity, your inability to, to, to give them the truth has caused this entire world to come up underneath the influence of what you see you're surrounded by. What have you been doing? That's kind of what God is asking us today in the Western culture of our time. What has the church been doing? How is it that our streets are filled with violence, our children uh, driven by Marxist socialist ideologies, everyone uh, breaking off into different sections and components in our culture, everyone taking a stand for what they believe or they don't believe or who they hate or who says what, join, throw in the political philosophies of the day or the pseudo-spirituality of the day, and we have a mess. And we in the Christian West, who claim to have the answers to these to these societal ills, to what's actually happening all around us. It's like when Paul was in Athens. What has the church been doing? Because really what he went to dispute with them, what he was basically telling them was, look, you have become so ineffective, you've surrounded yourself by your four walls, and, you, and, and your ineptitude and your abrogation of your spiritual and moral authority has caused the culture to become what you see around you and it seems like it doesn't even bother you. It bothered Paul. He was stirred when he saw this. That's how we're supposed to be right now. Stirred over what we see taking place around us. Especially what the great apostle knew. We have the answer. We have the solution. We have the, uh, not philosophy, but the eternal unchallenged truth that there's one God, one Savior, one Holy Spirit, and He's yet extending His hand to humanity asking them, will you allow me to heal you? Will you allow me to save you? Will you allow me to bring clarity and understanding and meaning for the purposes of life? And so He goes right to the church and He throws the, the spiritual gauntlet down on their pulpits and said, what have you been doing. He disputed with them, verse 17. Verse 18, well, he doesn't just sit there and yell at the church. He decides he's going to lead by example. Verse 18 says that he goes out into the marketplace uh, in verse 17 and 18. And while he's in the marketplace, which was kind of like the Starbucks of our day, you know, I mean, it's where everybody gathered, you know, everybody met. You know, it's where they had goods and exchanges, the open air farmers markets. I mean, that's kind of what it was like where commerce was happening, but people would hang out and talk and have conversations. And they were always looking for something new to hear. And, and here comes this great apostle. Where did he come from? It's beautiful to me because in, a, in essence, he's, he's bringing the spirit of Christ to a society that has never heard the gospel. Not to this point. That's why he went and first talked to the church. You have the answer, man, but you ain't doing nothing. And so he leads by example and he goes out into the marketplace. And while he's there, he came to the attention of two elite schools of thought. Remember, this is kind of like the Harvard, the Yale, the Cambridge, the Oxford, however, whatever place you want to talk about. I mean, these were where they went and studied the highest orders of thought. And in there, it says in verse 18, there came the Epicureans and the Stoics. And, and really those schools of thought, that is really what has driven the whole of human history. It's old. It's old philosophy just repackaged from generation to generation. The very first ones that, 
that that uh, that he came to speak to were the Epicureans and and Epicurean. Uh, I, I I was studying that and 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 these this is what they believed. Because again, remember, one he wasn't afraid to bring out his his gospel into the midst of this. It's almost like the church goes and hides away, or you know we really don't talk about our faith. You know that's kind of a personal matter. I get it, but. <laughs> It's actually turned around itself in our time, and, and now they're telling us what to believe. They're preaching their gospel to us. What do you have to give to them? Can you, in the confidence of your spirit and mature spiritual development, say, I'm ready to enter into the marketplace because what I have transcends what they have? Am I moved by the same spirit of compassion as the great apostle leads us in an example to be? And what's really cool about this is he immediately he he comes up under uh, the uh, the scrutiny of the two major philosophies of the day. One was the Epicurean philosophy. Let me tell you what that was. These people taught that uh, taught that life is really all about one thing: seeking pleasure. Uh, modestly, of course. I mean, Epicurus was the one who started this philosophy. He used to teach, hey, it's okay to do whatever you want to do. Just, you know, do it halfway, you know. I mean, you don't you want to go to one extreme or the other. Just whatever makes you feel good. And really, that's really what life's all about is just, you know, being happy. But, you know, as time went on, uh, his philosophy gave way to uh, they didn't really believe what he believed. They just said, hey, we might as well just do whatever we want to do anyway. I mean, so everything was in excess and that's kind of how sin is, right? You can't just start with one little sin. It ends up taking control of your life. But they were being driven. The whole culture was being delivered by seeking pleasure. They wanted to make sure that the pleasure that they sought didn't bring any guilt or any pain to their life. So eventually they would just become hard as, as culture went along. They felt no guilt. They felt no pain. What does it really matter? It's all about me. They were what they call atomic materialists. <laughs> it's a fancy word. Uh, basically, they didn't believe in, in divine consequence or, or having an accountability to any god. Even though they were surrounded by all kinds of idols and stuff, all kinds of temples, all kinds of philosophies that had emerged at their time, yet at the core of what they believed, that's the Epicureans, is there is no god. There is no accountability for my life. I, I'm born, I live, I die. Everything is here, everything is now. My soul is just simply mortal. There is no afterlife. And they had this famous phrase. The phrase was, uh, it, it came from their poets. The phrase was, I was not, uh, I was. I am not, and I don't care. In other words, I, was, I wasn't anything before this. Now that I'm alive, I am. I'm going to die, so I am not. And I won't care. Because I don't have any feeling after I'm dead. I just live. I die. And that's it. And, and really what's interesting is that this phrase was put on many of the gravestones throughout ancient Greece. Archaeologies have discovered and, and Rome. They used to put that on their gravestone. And, and, and I was reading uh, this morning and it says today it's often used 
in many of the humanist funerals. You know, those funerals where no one can get along and they, and they just kind of, you know, uh, say, well, we don't want to bring up any God, so we'll just use this Epicurean phrase. That's really where it came from, was from Epicurus, which means there is no before, there's only now, and when I die, there's nothing after, so it really doesn't matter. But Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they called him a babbler, an idiot. He's just an idiot. He's just crazy. He's lost his mind. The Greek son has gotten to him, you know. I mean, that's, that's kind of how they felt about him. But there was something that they got a hold of him. They, 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 they kind of bothered them. And we'll just leave them off to the side for a second. It won't be very much longer. But, but then he also talked to the Stoics, verse 18. The Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, these were different guys. What they believed, they were like the New Agers of our time. You know, like the Shirley MacLaine's or the David Icke's of the world. Some of you know who David Icke is and Shirley MacLaine. But they basically pre preach a philosophy of, of, uh, of monistic physics. It's a f fancy little word, right? But what they believed was in virtue living. In other words, doing good, being moral. They believed in logic, in the sciences, in intellectualism. They believed in monistic physics. What that literally means is they believed that there's one energy, uh, the source from which all things flow. It's, it's uh, when we die, we're like absorbed into this great consciousness. And, and, and we should, in essence, pursue to unite with the cosmic force of good, the one force. That is really what life's about, is finding and not fighting against what is revealed in nature, even at the subatomic level. Protons, neutrons, electrons, everything is made up of this nebulous force, this, this light. Everything's emitted from it. And then when you die, you, 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 you get absorbed up into the consciousness of it. And you just become one with it. There is no you, there is no uh, single identity, there's just one. Eh, it's kind of interesting, and, and it is what a lot of people say today. It's that same kundalini kind of aspect of in India and Hinduism and all that kind of stuff, being absorbed into the light, you know, being part of the metaphysics of, of, of the light waves of creation. But you know... Both of these people were affected by Paul. And, and so even though outwardly <laughs> they were making fun of him, they brought him, like I said earlier, to the Harvard and the Yale and the Oxford and Cambridge of his time. I mean, the seat of intellectual debate. They called it Mars Hill. And they brought him. This is an incredibly privileged place. And it's a long way from the dusty combative synagogues and temple uh, experience in Jerusalem. Now he's standing in the very apex of Gentile culture, of non-Jewish culture, the, the, most in, the, the seat of where everything has its source, where the elite of the elite gather, whether they're artists, poets, mu musicians, philosophers, po politicians, military generals, spiritualists, all of them were there. And that's where they brought him. So even though they made fun of him, there was something about what he was saying, something about what was flowing out of his arguments to them 
that caused them to want to set him in front the elite of his day and say, go ahead and tell these guys what you've been telling us. That's what Mars Hill was. The hill of Eris, where we get Areopagus. The hill of, of debate, Mars Hill. And, and then he preaches this great sermon. And what he begins to tell them, because remember, they never even heard of Jesus. They never heard of the Bible. And so what he begins to talk to them about in verse 23, he says, look, I was walking around your city, man. And he says, I pass by and I see all your temples. I see all your artwork. I hear all your music your, and, and all that you guys are preaching. And, and, and I've come across this one place in your city. I saw this altar and it had written on the altar to the unknown God. And, and so what I've come to talk to you about, he says, is, is this unknown God because you have uh, ignorantly been worshiping him. In your quest to find meaning for life, you've taken many and multiple tributaries away from the one road that leads to him. And while I commend your zeal and I admire your desire to learn and to grow and to be cultural, to be socially accepted, to be significant, and to have the ability to commune and converse with others, my heart is broken for you because in your celebration of your vaunted wisdom and sciences and poetry and art and music and all the other things, he says, I'm going to expose something to you. If you really knew that this single path or multiple paths were the best way for life, why would you construct an altar to the unknown God? Really what he was doing was exposing them by drawing their attention to that altar. He was saying, you put yourself out there like you're enlightened, but yet you admit there's a God that you don't know. Why would you do such a thing? And really what he was trying to say was, because deep within the core of your heart, there's something there that as, as, as enlightened as you think you are, as hedonistic as you might conduct yourself, all of it has left you empty. The pursuit of gain, materialistic living, enlightened thinking, in the aloneness of your heart, that is where that God is reaching to you. That's what he said. And it was he and his spirit, basically, that caused you to even construct such a thing. Because eternity is in the heart. Not the head, but the heart. And it's there that God begins to deal with us. And so Paul, the master apostle, he didn't come there and appeal to their head. There's no way. <laughs> That's all they did was, was try and think of stuff. And this is something that we need to understand as, as believers. You're not going to win someone to the Lord by your, as, as good as your apologetics might be, as good as your convincing arguments might be. That's not going to win people to the Lord because it, 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 it only allows the thoughts and the concepts to come to rest here in the soul. But we're so much more than soul. We are spirit, each individually and uniquely created by the one who loved us and desired for us to be. And that's who he 
he reached, he went beyond the logic, though it is logic, he went to the heart of the matter. You obviously have a desire for something greater than yourselves, or you wouldn't have constructed this magnificent city. You wouldn't have built all these great temples. You wouldn't spend your entire day focusing simply on what I can learn, or what I can grow, or how I can expand. Because what I'm trying to appeal to you, he said, excuse me, is I'm trying to appeal to the very heart of who you are, the essence of who you are. And I commend you for your, your desire to be, to, to be this kind of a person, but what has it really left you with? You continually are dealing with that part of yourselves and you have manifested in creating it an altar to an unknown God because there's something yet, if you'll admit to yourself, he was saying, on the depth of who you are. I don't know. I'm not 100% convinced of what I think I know. And, uh, and he said, that's who I want to talk to you about. Him. Because he sent me to you. Right? So he blows their minds. He blows their minds by telling them, there is a God. You guys are right. That's what he was saying. There is a God. But he's the supreme one God. The only God. And he transcends the material universe. He's outside of time and space and he's personal <laughs> that blew him away see because even the great you know the new agers the stoics we were talking about earlier the ones who were like you know it's all part of the one we get absorbed into the one the the, the philosophy they preached was contained and confined within the universe itself yes there was a question on that earlier what's the oh, question <laughs> Ducks fan, he said, uh, I like David Icke. He questions everything. Is he a kook? No, he's not a kook. But he's like a stoic, David Icke. Uh, honestly, he, he's closer to the truth than most preachers today. But he's apart from Christ. You know, David Icke, uh, he, he claims to have received his information by standing on a mountain in Peru. He claims that a storm came out of, of the West and overshadowed him and then took control of his body and then told him and spoke to him that he would go to the whole world and that he would be a spokesman for the one. He's a stoic, very brilliant, excellent concepts, but he needs Jesus Christ. See, that's what Paul was trying to say to them. I, I, I actually love the brother. I pray for, for, for David Icke, <laughs> I do, and his family. Because I think he's a lone person out on an island shouting to the heavens, will anyone listen? But he's, he's deficient in his full understanding. And that's, he really would have been at Mars Hill on this day with Paul. You know, Paul was there trying to bring clarity and understanding and, and, and cohesion to what they were all feeling. See, there's something that drives us all. It's been there since the day that we first became conscious of who we were as individual people. From the moment we were conceived till we came into the world, out of the womb, and we were bombarded with a predetermined reality that we came into. Now, the Apostle John tells us that Jesus Christ is the light, is the light. He's not a light, he's the light. And he is the one that lights every man that comes into the world. So he's literally saying, it's like when we're born, it's like we're born in this dark, dark, dark tunnel. 
without any source of light, and then suddenly it's as if in the, in, the, in the far distance we see a flicker of light and we head toward it. That's what Christ is and who he is. And as we get closer and closer to him, the light grows larger and larger until he reveals himself to our hearts and tells us, I always intended for you to be, and now I'm bringing you home to myself. That's why these Stoics were actually a lot closer to the truth than uh, than the Epicureans who just said, you know, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll, man. That's what we all live for. It's just pleasure, you know. <laughs> they were the they were the atheists, Darwinianists, the Marxists, whatever you want to call them, the Satanists of their day. They were crazy, man. They were party animals, and it was all about me, myself, and I. So you know, we kind of know what those kind of people are like. But these Stoics were so close, so close, and yet so far. And this is what I marvel at, is that God sent this, this, this wonderful Hebrew scholar prophet into their midst to reveal the truth to them. And he begins to blow them away because he begins to teach them there is a God who is not confined inside space and time. He's outside of it. And he goes on to quote their poets to them. He says, your own poets have taught you this. Let me read that. What he told them, he draws from their own writings. He says, look, there's a God that made the world. He made all things. He said, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He's standing in the middle of a temple when he says this to them. It's as if he looks around and goes, he doesn't dwell in something like this. If he, if he could, consider that. That's basically what he was saying to them. Is, look, if he could be in a temple, he wouldn't be God. The temple itself would be God because he has to be up underneath its protection. And if the God of the universe is confined by the very universe that, that, that he claims to have made, then the universe itself is God. And that's the conclusion that the Stokes came to. But Paul steps into this climate and delivers an argument that blows him all away. And he says there's a dimension and multiple dimensions that are higher than what we can see, feel, taste, think, experience. And it's outside of that that the one who made it all dwells, and that's who I'm talking to you about, he said to them. If he could dwell in the temples, uh, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, and neither is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needs anything. Why? Because he gives life to all, and breath, soul, he animates you, and all things. And listen, he goes on and says, and this is something that we ought to hear today in the public square. He's made of one blood all nations of men. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's why he started off mad at the church, right? He goes over this. What are you doing? Look at these people. You have absolutely no effect on them. And look at how zealous they are to want something real. You have the answer and you're hiding behind your four walls of religion? Shame on you. That's what he said. And this is what we need to hear. He says, look, we're all made of one blood. All the nations come from one man, one blood to dwell on the face of the earth and he's determined the times and the seasons beforehand and he set their boundaries and habitations. Why? So that they should seek the Lord and feel after him and find him even though he's not very far from any one of us. He says it's the quest, it's the journey. When you're born, he says, you begin to feel. He's trying to uh, debate with them and, and, and tell them by the gospel Everything you've been doing to try to figure out the meaning of life, it's part of his plan. So that when you come to the end of all these explorations and still find yourself wanting and empty at the very core of the depth of the hidden part of your being, it's there. 
that you're now closer to him than you've ever been. And he comes to reveal himself to you as he's doing right now, Paul is saying, through me. For in him, he says, we live and we move and we have our being. As certain of your own prophets have said to you, we're all his offspring, he said. And then he says this, for as much then as we are created in the image of God or the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like gold or silver or stone or some artistic device that man has made. And he said this to them, he says, look, in the old times, up all up until history, until now, he said, this kind of ignorance about God, he said, he just kind of overlooked it. He winked at it. He says, but now he's commanding that every man everywhere repent. And, and ra rather than getting in the weeds about repent from your sin and all that bad stuff, really what he was saying to them is you have been missing the mark. That's what repent literally means. You've been shooting your arrows at, at, a, at a moving target. And he's saying, look, I've come to bring you the source and the truth and to collate all these thoughts in Christ. They make sense and they're understood spirit to spirit, not head to head. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual things, he says, quit missing the mark. And he says, you know why? Because God has a purpose and a plan and there are far greater forces at work here far greater combative things struggling against each other that are far too involved to get into right now. But I want you to know he's appointed a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance to all men that he has raised Christ from the dead and that in him, he goes on to explain, we have life. So in essence, what he was saying is that up until now, all these temples, all these schools of philosophy, all these works of poetry and artistry and, and music, all of it have been attempts that you've made trying to find him, whether you realized it or not. And so, so your idols of silver and gold and, and of wood, God has allowed you to, to do all that. But he says, look, now... That time of ignorance is over and he commands us to repent, to quit missing the mark. And in essence, in verse 31, like I just read to you, he was saying the clock has now started and history has begun to march the road that will bring it into account with the one and true God. And I've come to give you a warning about that. We all got to get our act together and, and receive the truth of what he's unfolding and revealing to us, especially now in our times. And let me finish with this. It's going to be Christ the Lord, he said, who's going to judge the world. Because, And how do we know him? Because he's the one that God raised from the dead. And that's where he ended his sermon. And it says, <laughs> it says, it says, uh, and when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, it says uh, they all mocked him. Some of them mocked him. Others said, well, yeah, it's kind of interesting. We'll hear a little bit more about this later. That's what they told him. And so he left them. But here's what I want to leave with you today. Because this really blessed me. It says in verse 34, there were certain men who were there that day, and women, who, who, who claved to Paul. They, they got a hold of Paul, and they believed what he was preaching. One's name was uh, Dionysius. He was the uh, the uh, Arapagite. Er 
I have a hard time saying that word. <laughs> and one was a woman named Damaris, and there were others with them. And I thought about that. Okay, so this is kind of really how the gospel is, right? You lay this kind of case out like we're talking about this morning, and a whole bunch of people laugh at it and go, ah, that guy's nuts, man. You know, whatever. And then there's others who go, well, that's kind of interesting, but I'm just not ready to make a decision. But there was the few. And, 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 I, and I did a little study on these two, Dionysius and Damaris. Damaris was a woman, Dionysius. Uh, I find that really incredible who he was. He was actually in charge of the very school of thought. His very name means Bacchus. He was an Epicurean. You want to hear something cool? And, and I ain't got time to lay all this out. You go do your own study. But Dionysius, it is said and written by the early church fathers, was actually a child in Egypt. A young, like 12, 11, 10, 12 years old in Egypt when Jesus Christ was crucified on Calvary. And the reason I point that out, and I was reading that this morning, it blew me away. I was like, wow, if this is true, this is incredible. But this is what's written in the early church fathers. If you remember the gospel story, it says from about noon till 3 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, there was a solar eclipse that darkness came upon Calvary and, and the world. Well, according to the church fathers, that when that solar eclipse happened, that Dionysius and, and his family in Egypt experienced it and it sent shockwaves and fear throughout the Middle East when that was occurring. Dionysius became a, a believer in Christ, but it was this day when Paul came on Mars Hill, all those years later when he began to preach the gospel to him, he remembered the day of this very Jesus that he's talking about. It never left him, according to his own writings, Dionysius became a great leader in the early church. He built a church. He's highly revered to this day by the Eastern Orthodox Church and even celebrated in the Roman Catholic Church. But the early uh, writers uh, of church history mention him and say his testimony, what he said was when he was a boy and that, and that eclipse happened, it never left him. And that when Paul came all those years later and now he's in charge of this school of debate and here stands the apostle and begins to preach the gospel to him, suddenly it made sense and he understood and he gave up his life that he knew his place of privilege and all that he had been doing up until that point and he became a believer. That's incredible. And because he was an Epicurean, you know that Dionysius, his name means Bacchus. Bacchus was the god of partying, sex, drugs, rock and roll, incredible debauchery. That's, that's the life he had given himself to. And so what's so powerful to me is the second person as well, Damaris. She was of the school of the Stoics. Her name means uh, in the Hebrew, a palm tree or one who is calm one who is stoic. That's what her name means. That's what stoicism means. You know, have you ever heard the phrase, oh, he's just really stoic. He's just really calm. She's on the other school. And so Paul bore fruit here showing this man and this woman representative of the entirety of the Gentile world and Western civilization that would believe the gospel and transform the history of the world. Whether they're a partier or whether they're an incredible intellectual who wants to live a good and peaceable life, he managed by the preaching of the gospel to break through these philosophies. They turned and they believed the gospel. Hallelujah. Have you ever had that happen to you? where he bursts into your heart like a thousand sunrises, where whether you're Dionysius who lives a crazy, wacko life like I used to, 
And he lists the burden of that guilt and the secret places of, of the horrible things that you would never want to admit to yourself or to others. You can't even believe you did some of the things you did. But when Christ came in, he washed it all away. He lifted the burden from your soul. He, you got up and suddenly the, the leaves and the trees were greener. The, the birds sounded more beautiful. The sun was even shining greater. Everything was in, in multicolor, technicolor, vibrancy. Your sin had been taken away. That's what happened to Dionysius and Damaris. She was the other. She didn't live a crazy life. She wasn't living in a debauched way. She lived a good life, a virtuous life. But there was still something at the heart that she knew she needed. And when she heard the gospel, he saved her soul. Hallelujah. Even though it was only a few that day, it shows us the love of God. That he hears the cry of the heart. And even if it's only one soul, he sent his son for them. He has sent his son to all of us over the last 2,000 years of human history. And he's sending him again soon because this world belongs to him and he's coming to get his children. This is the gospel. He's coming again. And he's sending his word to us today. He cares for that one single soul. God so loved the world. He gave His only Son, His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let Him come into your heart today, my heart, our loved ones, our communities. Let us not be like those, those early believers, the Jews and, and the others who, who never left the four walls. Because if you really believe what we're talking about here today, you can't hold it in sight, inside our heart. It's too great. Our care for each other, for humanity, for our cultures, for our societies, for our nations is at stake. And the only answer, like Paul knew, and his example echoes through the corridors of history down to us, even this morning, there's only one Lord. There's only one King. There's only one answer to the ills of our heart. He's a savior, not just for now, but forever, if we turn to him. And if we believe that, we'll tell others, just like Paul did in Athens. We love you. We pray you have a great week. Father, I bless your people. Bless all those that are listening. And may you reveal your son to them, that he alone would be glorified. Have a blessed week. We love you and hope to see you again next weekend. In Jesus' name, God bless.